0: Heavenly Father, it is a a joy to come together with your people. It is a joy that we have um, your word available to us, that is able to make us wise for salvation, uh, that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Uh, Lord, we know that no degree of preparation, no degree of wise words will change any single person. And so, Lord, we are totally dependent upon the work of your Spirit, both in my life and also in the lives of every single one of us here, uh, that your word might do its work, that it might be uh, a piercing, uh, that we might see something of the wonderful glory of God and that we might be forever be changed as your word challenges us, it encourages us, and it points us to Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Lord, we pray that you uh, be active amongst us during this time and that we would hear your voice to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Apparently, human beings are the most intelligent life on earth. You want to know something? Humans do stupid stuff, even the cleverest of them. I want you to picture this idea. Imagine, for most of you, either your house is the most expensive thing you own, or if you're renting, the most expensive possession that most of you will have will be your car. So you think, oh, well, if something really valuable, I'm going to look after it. What happens is, you go out, think, oh, I'm a little bit peckish, I might do a bit of a drive through, get myself a drink, get myself a coffee, get me a Coke, whatever, whatever floats your boat. And then you're driving down to Woomba Range. You're there in the left hand lane, you come around a corner, and there's a truck going really, really slow, and you know, you need to stop really suddenly. What's your first reaction? You're holding this drink between your legs because your coffee cup coffee, your cup holders are full of your phones and whatever else you've stuffed in it. And your first reaction you know is, I need to stop this car. That, that's That should be the first reaction. Everyone's first reaction is, let's protect this $3.50 coffee I've just bought from spilling on the carpet of my car before I put my foot on the brake. Don't we do that? Or we hear stories about on the Titanic, the boats going down. think, what am I going to do? I need to save my life. People are going, the deck chairs, that's quality PVC. We can't lose that. And they're grabbing onto them. When we are faced in the middle of our difficult times, we don't always make the wisest decisions of what we actually need. And as we're going to see this morning, even God's own people are very slow sometimes to identify what we really do need in any given situation. We've been preaching our way through the book of Exodus, so now we're up to chapter 5. Uh, it's our sixth sermon. To give you a world's quickest uh, overview of where we've come from, the very first Pharaoh was particularly concerned at the number of the Israelites, the way they were being fruitful, they were growing. And so he threw everything at it in order to try and limit them growing in numbers and particularly from growing in male numbers Because in his paranoid mind, he's thinking, you know, if war comes, there's no reason why they should want to help and fight with us. They might join with our enemies. Let's get rid of as many of them as we can. Let's stop them reproducing, and particularly let's stop them having male children. So he starts first by making them work hard, treating them ruthlessly as slaves, and then finally comes down to the conclusion of male childs born to the Hebrews, kill them. But one thing that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus, there is the almighty God who is the ultimate authority and there's a pharaoh, king of Egypt, who thinks he's the ultimate authority. Yet in those situations, it is God who achieves everything that he sets out to accomplish, as we saw in Psalm 135. And he has promised that part of the creation mandate was to be fruitful and to multiply he promised to Jacob, he says, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt because there I will make you into a great nation. So we shouldn't be surprised that even though the highest ruler in the world at that point in time is effectively trying to stop them from, from growing and multiplying, that he fails and he fails dismally. The almighty God is unstoppable. He achieves all he sets out to do. But in the middle of that situation, a male Hebrew child is born. Moses, the one that, having read through the book of Exodus, we know is the one who's God's chosen deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. Now we saw in previous weeks that there came a time when Moses, who was raised in Pharaoh's household, there's a bit of sense of humour there for you, the, the Pharaoh wanted him dead and he ends up getting raised under the care and protection of Pharaoh's household, goes out to see the plight of his own people. And we're told from Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is is giving his account there, he says that Moses actually thought that he was being their deliverer when he goes out and he kills the Egyptian slave master who who was beating on a Hebrew. But in the end, what happened was he was rejected by his own people. The Egyptians didn't want him. He's on the run from the Egyptians because the Pharaoh wants him dead because of the murder that he's done to the slave driver. Then in these last two weeks... We see these things, that God has heard the cries of his people. He's seen their affliction and he says, I am going to come down, I'm going to deliver them out of slavery from Egypt, that they might be a people for myself. Here I've remembered my covenant that I made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which as we saw back in Genesis chapter 15, that God had promised even in his covenant there with Abraham, that even though they'd be treated as slaves for 400 years, that he would be their deliverer. And we've also seen that Moses was called from the burning bush. God says, you know, I've heard your pleas. I've heard your cries. I myself am going to come down and be your deliverer and you'll come across and you'll worship me on this mountain. And Moses is thinking, ripper. About time. This is what have been looking for. Remember what you said back to Abraham? But then he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Up until then, when God's saying that he's going to deliver them, Moses thinks this is fantastic, but now he says, you're the guy I'm going to use. And Moses throws pretty much every excuse in the book as to why he's not going to do it. And eventually just says, send someone else. God's promised his presence with Moses. He's answered every single one of his questions. Yet Moses still says, send someone else. And it appears God makes a little concession, says your brother Aaron can speak. If you're really worried that you're not a good enough speaker, I'm still working through you. You're still my man, but you pass on what I say to Aaron and he can be your voice if you need to do things that particular way. Last week, as Samuel covered the the end of chapter 4, we see that Moses goes before Uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, so he's gone as he's left Egypt. He's gone to the land of the Midianites. He's married the daughter of the the priest of Midian, and that was Midian, um, Jethro. And so Moses goes to Jethro, the father-in-law, saying, is it okay if I go down to my people in Egypt? So also taking uh, Jethro's daughter and his grandchildren. He says, yes. God also tells Moses, those who sought your life have died. It is now safe to return to Egypt. And chapter 4 ended on a very positive sort of note. Now Moses was kind of wondering how all this is going to work. My people have rejected me when i tried to be their deliverer the first time. I've been on the run from Egypt. How's it going to work if I'm God's chosen deliverer? So God's told them to go to the people and tell them this. And says, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So here it is. God has promised that Moses would be their deliverer. He's worried, how's this going to go to actually go to tell these people they don't really like me much? Yet when they go there, they do the signs that God has appointed for them to do. The people fall down and worship. They worship in faith, not because they've seen God deliver, but because they have believed that these are the people that God has raised up and that God is going to provide their redemption, their, their salvation. Now, if it wasn't for God on a number of occasions telling us that, that Pharaoh is going to say no, that God himself is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, you'd think, Ripper, it's action time now. It's it's all going to happen. But if there's one thing that we've learned throughout the book of Exodus, God is sovereign. That meaning God is the ultimate authority over all things. But that doesn't necessarily mean he works according to our time frame. He works according to his good and perfect timing. In today's passage, we see pretty much a battle between two claims of ultimate authority. You've got God we we see that introduced by the words of and the Lord says as they come before Pharaoh. But then you see the, the counteractive claim from Pharaoh going back to the people, thus says Pharaoh. So the chapter begins Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh just like they've been asked to do. Now remember the task that they've been, they've been given. God has told them to go before the highest ruler in the world say, let my people go. In other words, let the thousands of slaves you have who are building up your cities, doing all this hard work, let them go. Moses, up until this point in time, has been entirely reluctant to serve in any way of who who is he to come before Pharaoh. So how does he go when he gets before Pharaoh? Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to, and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That doesn't sound like sheepish Moses to me, does it? Poor old Moses, like, oh, I can't speak good. Oh, don't don't, send me. Comes before the highest power in the world, and he says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Can you imagine going before Kim Jong-un and just give him a thus says the Lord how you'd feel there's a boldness here where'd this confidence come from I reckon verse 3 gives us a pretty good indication in verse 3 says we have met with the God of the Hebrews they have encountered the living God even though initially in that encounter you can see Moses with all of his questions Obviously, he's had a bit more time to think about it. And through his encounter with the living God, he goes in there with confidence. A little bit like you see with the disciples. Jesus is arrested. They all go running away in fear. Come the morning that he said that he'd be raised, they're not waiting to see a resurrected body. They're hiding for fear of the Jews that the same thing might happen to them. But then afterwards, when they've seen the risen Christ, these people who are hiding in fear, all of a sudden will risk their life, they'll do anything. To proclaim the wonderful good news Of the gospel That is the nature of an encounter With the living God So when there's battle between Thus says the Lord And thus says Pharaoh We know which one's the right one to listen to But we don't Always get it right Everything appears to go exactly according to plan Just like God had said in Exodus 3.18 This is what you do, go before them, say these words. But there's one little bit noticeably missing. God says, not only you and Aaron are to go, it says, and the elders. Now, we only have to presume, it doesn't say whether they were there or not, but they're not getting a mention here at all. Some people go so far to question when Moses says the words, "Let's that we may go hold a feast or a festival in the wilderness, thinking hang on, that's not what God said. God said that we might go sacrifice, but a feast or a festival will probably include that. So I, I think people are clutching at straws a little bit for something like that. So how's Pharaoh going to re- respond? Here he is thinking, here's the ultimate authority. Someone comes before him and says, thus is the Lord, let my people go. Well, we know it's not going to go down too well because we've already been told that he's not going to let them go, that God's going to harden their heart. So what's Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh says, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover I will not let Israel go. When he says who is the Lord, this is more than just a not familiar with this one. Tell me a little bit more. This is coming from the voice of a man who thinks he's the ultimate authority. And he's like, "Who's this? who's this God of yours that I should listen to him and do what he wants us to do? It's both a refusal to to accept his authority and then as a result a refusal um, to to be obedient to him And you think why would he why would he want to listen if in his mind he thinks he's the ultimate authority and he's probably weighing weighing things up thinking well if this god of the of the Israelites has actually got anything about him then his people wouldn't be here in Egypt working as slaves he would have done something that's his that's his logic anyway. Now, I don't know if Moses and Aaron try to answer his question or if they just think, hang on, this guy didn't get it. We just brought him a message from the from the almighty God and he's just thrown it away. So they, maybe they come back for a second crack. They said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go for three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So they've answered the question, if, if Pharaoh is asking, who is this God? He's saying, he is the God of the Hebrews, whom we have met with, we have seen him, and this is his message to you. But now he also takes it a little bit step further. Not only are you to let the people go, but if you do, there's going to be consequences. If you don't let the people go, there will be pestilence or there will be plagues, and as we'll see, there certainly will be. Or he will come in a, with military might against them. What is interesting is ancient records from the time of Ramesses II actually record people who were granted leave from their slave duties for religious purposes. So there's nothing unreasonable about the request. Although we have covered in previous weeks that the request to go away for three, three days was actually an ancient idiom or an expression that could, didn't just mean three days, it could mean go away for a long time and and possibly not even come back. But beyond the fact that it seemed like a reasonable request that is documented did happen, but there's also the threat of plagues and of defeat by the sword. Does this change his mind in any way whatsoever? Because so far, Moses and Aaron have done exactly what God has commanded. They've been faithful. And some of us in the back of our mind think, as long as I'm faithful and obedient in my walk with God, everything's going to be swift, comfortable and easy. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? The Bible doesn't say, if you trust me, if you obey me, I will make your life full of happiness, joy and everything will be comfy And you'll just kick back and one day you'll just go to be with Jesus with a big smile on your face. Faithfulness to God has no assurance of an easy life. In fact, the complete opposite. The Bible tends to give the impression the closer you are and the more faithful you are in your walk with God, the more likely you are to be met with resistance. Take, for example, the apostles who were faithful to that wonderful call of, of taking the Gospels out to the nations God loved them. They were being faithful and obedient to what they were called to do, yet they were met with resistance time and time again, particularly Paul, but all of them. Matter of fact, all except for one of them were killed for their faith. When you read through First Peter, Peter's reminding them that you will suffer. and He says, make sure when you do suffer, you suffer for doing good. So he actually makes the connection that sometimes even when you're being good, when you're being faithful, bad things happen. And even though God has promised that he will deliver the people from Egypt, things did not naturally and immediately improve the moment that God's chosen deliverers went before Pharaoh. Matter of fact, before things got better, things got significantly worse. They were already being treated as slaves ruthlessly, building cities. Now that they've come before Pharaoh and sort of, I suppose, undermined his authority by saying, this is what God says, let my people go, he's a little bit offended by that. So he says, yeah, you want to see who's really in control? You want to you want to tell me what to do? I'll show you who's in control. He says, you're going to work? You're still going to have the same things you need to achieve? You know how we used to bring you the straws to make your bricks? Get him yourself. It's very much a display of you threaten me with the this is the word of the Lord, I'll show you who's in control. You say to me, Let my people go, I'll let you go, get straw for yourself. I'm not letting you go, you can go get it yourself, you lazy things. That's pretty much the, the way he comes across. So Pharaoh calls his taskmasters and, and the foreman together and to make sure they know what the deal is. Same, same amount of work needs to be done, which is already a ridiculous amount, but now they've got to get their own straw work. Summarise there in verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labour at it and pay no regards to lying words. In other words, work them hard, show them who's really in control, show them who they really belong to, show them who they really need to look up to, and pay no attention to their lying words, which in Pharaoh's mind is thinking, if they say God says let us go, that we need to go sacrifice to him, don't listen to it. If they say God is going to bring upon plagues because we haven't done this thing, don't listen to it. Just work them hard. Let them know who's boss. And as the message goes out to the slaves, you'll notice that it is very familiar wording. Taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh... I will not give you straw. So the people come before Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord. And he says, yeah, I'll show you who's in control. Take this message out to the people. Thus says Pharaoh. I'm the one who calls the shots. Sends out this message. I'm not giving you straw. You go find your own. You still need to meet the same quotas and get back to work, you lazy slackers. Not only was there no delivery of straw coming for them, but it seems that they couldn't actually find enough to do it that they had to substitute rubble instead of straw. Now, let's not forget that previously their slavery has been described as being ruthless. Hard work, being beaten, long hours, out the Egyptian sun. I don't believe there was someone coming around with drinks every now and then. Would you like a drink, sir? A little time orange break. I don't think that was in there. But now they've even raised it on top of that. Dramatically increased work and the Hebrew foremen are being beaten for not meeting those ridiculously set goals. That's probably not the position they expected themselves to be with him. Remember how chapter 4 ended? They've heard that Moses and Aaron are God's chosen ones. They receive that. They, they worship God in faith that God's deliverance is coming. Their deliverers have gone before Pharaoh and things have gone downhill. It's not what they were hoping for at all. So where do they turn for their deliverance? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Who did they turn to when things went downhill? They didn't cry out to God. They didn't cry out to Moses. They cried out to Pharaoh. Either they're not convinced that what they've just heard was actually come from Pharaoh, that maybe the, the, the taskmasters have just made these things up and are making it more difficult for them. Or maybe they actually thought the only person who could provide them relief in that situation was Pharaoh. And that second option seems to be the most likely it was in their mind because look at the way they refer to themselves twice. At the end of chapter 4 they identify them as people who worship the almighty God. Things have gone downhill and now they twice describe themselves as to Pharaoh as your servants. It's a very quick turnaround, isn't it? From one singing that I belong to the mighty God who is our deliverer. Things don't work out. All of a sudden think, now nah, this is our lot in life. We're just sl- slaves of Pharaoh. And they even go so far to blame Pharaoh for, for the way things are not get working out. And he just says, you're just lazy. Get back to work. Now they knew things weren't going to go too well when he says, you're not getting a straw. I mean, they'd already seen after Moses and Aaron have gone before Pharaoh, that, that didn't work out too well for them. And they're probably thinking, oh, I can't believe we have gone. It's, it's just going to get worse. Now, it's hard to tell in verse 20, by the way it's worded, whether or not Moses and Aaron were waiting for, for the foreman or if the foreman were waiting for them. That bit's um, uncertain. But what is certain is who the foreman are blaming for the situation they find themselves within. What they say to Moses and Aaron is this, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. That's pretty harsh words, isn't it? These are the ones whom they previously celebrated were God's chosen instruments of deliverance and they worshipped God in faith that God would actually work through these men Now, when the circumstances don't quite work out the way they hoped they would, they basically say, God curse you for what you've done. You've made us a stench to the to the Egyptians. Well, the Egyptians weren't a huge big fan of the Israelites beforehand, but let's let's forget that for a moment. But they're not only just angry with God's chosen deliverer, they actually ask God to judge them for for being faithful and doing the things that God had caused them to do. That's a massive swing from going from being worshippers, trusting that God had raised up a deliverer, that he'd seen their affliction, to basically calling upon God's judgment upon those who had faithfully done the right thing. Now, there's two things I want to draw out from this passage. The first is this. Being chosen by God, being a recipient of God's promises, or even being walking in obedience and faithfulness with God's does not guarantee instant relief or gratification in this world. And secondly, the question of where do we look in times of trouble? We've already seen the scene of of Exodus chapter 5. It ended with chapter 4 where the people are worshipping, trusting that God has seen their affliction and he's raised up a a deliverer. They've seen Moses and Aaron, they're convinced these are the ones... They're excited, they worship in faith, not seeing how he's going to deliver, but trusting that God would do and celebrating that God will do these things. But how quickly that faith and that trust dwindled when their circumstances didn't go the way that they hoped that they would go. When the deliverer confronts Pharaoh, things didn't get worse, they got, sorry, things didn't get better, they got worse. That's an important question to consider. When we come before God and things don't work out the way we should, what do we naturally think? Because sometimes we might find ourselves in a situation where things aren't the way that we'd like them to be. And we find ourselves constantly crying out before God, God, I need your deliverance in this thing. And time goes by and you see nothing. Or it might even get worse. Sometimes we might even go so far to question, does God love me? Has has God heard my prayers? Was it all in my head? Is this whole God thing a, a, a myth? Am I too sinful? Is that why God's not giving me what I should get? But what we see here is that our circumstances are not an indication of God's love for us. When you get to the end of Romans chapter chapter 8 and it says, will these things separate us from the love of God? Every sort of thing that we naturally start to question God's love for us are in that list and he says, no. None of these will separate us from the love of God. Now there's part of me that would really love to say that, and it would be popular for me to say it, that if you pray for something, God will fix it like that immediately 100%. That's not the way it works, nor is that what is best for us. Now, those of us who have children know that giving your kids everything they want is not a good thing. I can very easily picture our little girl saying, I need an icy pole, I'm going to (laughs) die. Giving people what they think they need all the time is not the best thing for them. We belong to a God who created us. Who knows far better than we do what we actually need. In today's example, plus also in the example of the apostles who suffered while being faithful and good, delayed response to bringing our requests and our cries before God is not a sign or an indication of God loving you or not loving you. Remember what God had promised previously to Moses? God says, I want you to go there. I will be with you. The fact that things have gone downhill doesn't mean that God is not with him. Matter of fact, that's the very confidence and the thing that he can cling to is that God is with him in the middle of his hardship. And it's the same for us. We're promised the same things. Jesus says, behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the middle of those things, God hasn't left us. He is there. He is there with us. His very presence in the middle of those things. It's often been said true peace is not distancing yourself from trouble or being avoid or away from affliction true peace isn't from a distance from trouble but in our nearness to god who is our savior who is our deliverer the new testament goes so far to say that suffering is actually for our good sometimes because it produces patience it produces perseverance and endurance which is for our good. Yet sometimes our natural response is to complain. It's not a time to complain. It's a time to pray before God. God, how do you want to use this situation that you've brought into my life for my good and for your glory? That doesn't mean you don't say, God, I want to be out of here. I want deliverance from this. But if that's not your will right now, show me what's and work, what is for my good and for your glory. So that's our first thing to look at. Being chosen by God, being a recipient of his promises, or even walking in obedience doesn't guarantee that life will be easy. The second is, where do we turn when things get tough? Remember how Acts chapter 2 finished. In verses 23 and 24 it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So previously, in the middle of their ruthless slavery, their cries went up to God. They realised he was the only one capable of delivering. He was the only rescuer. He was the only help to which they could look to. In our prayer meeting this morning, we're looking at Psalm 121. Well, my eyes look up the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. They understood that is the place we need to turn to. That is the only hope we have, not only in our times of need, but even in our times of plenty. But sadly, we see a very different story here in chapter 5. From rejoicing in that God was their deliverer, he has seen their affliction, to complaining against their God, and then crying out to Pharaoh. Presuming that he will be their deliverer He will bring their relief They're not real clever are they Pharaoh's the one who enslaved them He wants to keep them that way Asking him to make things easy is not going to work out That's kind of like coming before the devil And praying to the devil saying Set me free of my slavery to sin He doesn't want to. he wants you there It's foolishness In times of trouble Where do we go? We go to the person or the thing that we think is most able or most capable of helping us in our time of need. Now if you've got major car troubles, don't bring them to my house. I'm no good to you, I promise. Get in Humphreys Motors, you go and ask for e and you ring four six three two eight two double eight. There's no pay. Paid in there. I just thought it'd be funny to check in the phone number. Ian, Ian's here somewhere and he can say, go back to work on Monday and say, we've got a free plug at church on Sunday morning. But the point is, you go to where you think someone is most able to help you in your time of need. Matter of fact, where you turn to shows who you truly think or what you truly think is most capable, most able and the most useful thing available to you. So think about this for a moment. When things aren't going good in your life, where do you turn to first? What's the, what's the first thing you look to? Family, friends, food, shopping, alcohol, drugs, sex, porn, movies, movies, games, what is it? We all have a natural tendency to go somewhere. Then take an honest assessment. Is the God who created heaven and earth and everything in it, the God who is able to save you from from death, sin and judgement, the God who has the power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, is he truly less able to help you in your times of need than these things that we first turn to. And if you come to the conclusion and a right conclusion that he is more able and you actually want the best available help on what is actually best for you, then we need to start implanting this in our mind. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Because what we saw in the introduction, when we were talking about going down the range and we protect our drink before we're smart enough to put a foot on our brake, in the middle of our hard times, our natural inclination may not be God is the ultimate one to go to. Implant that in our mind, that we can proclaim along with the Apostle Paul who says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, so we do not lose heart. The outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father we know that The world in which we live in is uh, so incredibly fractured by sin. We see all sorts of pain, suffering, injustice, and we're even sometimes the recipient of it, even when we're living the way that you have called us to live, when we're doing our best to walk in obedience. Lord help us not to, to question your love for us because of the circumstances that we find ourselves within but help us to remember that we live in a broken world that's expected to see hard things happen. Help us to find encouragement from from people who have gone before us who who were totally dedicated and committed and faithful in their obedience, yet things didn't go well for them. Lord, we know that you are the ultimate saviour. You are the ultimate deliverer. And we confess so often and so frequently we don't always turn to you first and by our actions sometimes we give the impression that, that you are not as able as these other things. But Lord, that you are able to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. Everything you set out to accomplish, you, you achieve. Even in our hardships, you promise you can work them for our good to bring about perseverance and endurance. Lord, help us to look to you, to cry out to you for our deliverance, for our, for our salvation, for our help. But as we do that, may we not only ask for your deliverance, may we ask for your grace and your strength to endure, if that be your, uh, your purposes, to, to shape our character through the hardship. And may we know your presence with us during those times. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.